Welcome to Purpose Inc., the podcast where we discuss corporate purpose and stakeholder capitalism. I'm your host, Michael Young. My guest today is Anthony Goodman, who is senior client partner and head of the board effectiveness practice at Corn Ferry. There, Anthony advises public and private companies on a wide range of matters with a specialization in effective oversight of environmental, social, and governance, ESG, opportunities and risks. This is Anthony's second time on the podcast, and it's great to have him back. Today, we have another wide-ranging and insightful conversation on the key issues boards of directors face in corporate governance, social justice, climate risk, sustainability, diversity, equity, inclusion. And today, we jump right in on the topic of activist shareholders beginning with the recent news that invest that engine number one uh, the investment firm won three board seats at Exxon and there's a lot that's interesting about this story but one of the one of the big takeaways is how engine number one connected climate risk with underperformance for shareholders saying that the company's failure to evolve has been to the detriment of shareholders. So not just that the company needs to be green, but flipping the narrative from sustainability back to value creation. So a lot a lot of great stuff there. We talk about more broadly how climate has come roaring back as a key issue, the importance of materiality for boards in managing ESG priorities, why inclusion is just as important as diversity the trend toward tying executive compensation to achieving ESG and DEI goals, and how board effectiveness has been impacted and evolved in the age of Zoom and a post-pandemic location-flexible work model. As always, an incredibly thoughtful and well-informed conversation with board effectiveness expert, Anthony Goodman. Anthony, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Well, as always, a ton to talk about. Um, and I think we should, in the in the under the broad heading of of um, you know this conversation, why don't we take activism head on? Just given what's come out of headlines recently, so. What was your what was your take on on Exxon and Shell and how are you thinking about that? Yeah, this this has been a sort of momentous couple of weeks in the corporate governance world. Uh, of course, you know those of us who who are in this space uh, year in year out realized that twenty twenty one was going to be the year that climate came roaring back onto the corporate governance agenda, perhaps having really been on the back burner whilst everyone was dealing with the pandemic. And uh, boy, has it come roaring back. So you had this extraordinary vote situation. By the way, they're still counting the vote. So, you know, makes the uh, US uh, presidential election um, look well organized, but they're still counting the votes. Um, But it does appear that the activist at ExxonMobil has won three uh, board seats. They had four candidates up uh, for the election there, and they've they've won three of them, uh, have have been seated. So 
That's quite extraordinary um, because that uh, activist, engine number one, owns a tiny fraction, way less than 1% of the total equity. And of course, the only way that they could have won this vote is by persuading the largest um, institutional investors, the uh, Black Rocks and Vanguards and State Streets, etc., to support their candidates and to support their thesis uh, that ExxonMobil was not doing enough uh, to arrest its poor performance in uh, oil and gas and move to renewables and to set clear targets for uh, reducing its emissions um, and and heading to zero. Uh, And the company had resisted that and they've received quite the bloody nose um, in in response. So it is fascinating. Um, And, you know, what happens next will be equally interesting to watch. Um, But I think you are seeing the rise here of something interesting, which is the link between activists, you know, who've always tried to leverage small equity stakes um, to get control of boards in order to change strategy or change the CEO. And we've seen in general the amount of activism in Q1 of 2021 um, is almost equal to uh, half of what happened in 2020. So, uh, you know, it, it's we're definitely heading uh, towards a busy year for activists. Um, but you're now seeing that linked to ESG and climate change in quite a big way. Now, whether this will spill over outside of um, the oil majors, outside of extracted industries, um, utilities, I think it's a bit early to say, um, but certainly, you know, we'll be paying attention. And I think board directors, more importantly, should be paying a lot of attention to this because clearly if you pursue a path that your largest institutional investors do not support, uh, they are going to use their votes ultimately to unseat you, and that's going to have a lot of directors looking over their shoulder. Mm, interesting, and <clears throat> I think what's also fascinating to the point of the 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 asymmetry between the numbers and the narrative. Right, so engine number one, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of equity, but the narrative has clearly shifted. And, and so how do you, so uh, uh, what, what do you think the other implications are for, for companies more broadly, maybe those outside of extractive industries? Well, I think, look, the, the, the key really has, uh, for all companies right now is to be thinking through for themselves in their own industry, what are the material ESG risks and opportunities? And there are plenty of frameworks and tools and standards out there to help them do that thinking. And, uh, you know, SASB being an obvious one. I mean, you, anybody can go to the SASB website and look up their industry and figure out what their material risks and opportunities are going to be and therefore make sure that the board is organized around those 
uh, in terms of its agenda, in terms of how it's going to be dealt with in the committees, and to make sure that it is disclosing what it's doing to investors. And so I think whatever industry you're in, you need to understand what those material risks and opportunities are and get out ahead of the curve, get out there and be telling your story uh, in a very clear and concise manner to your investors and other stakeholders. So I think that's essential. Um, You know, at some point in the future, we'll stop talking about ESG and sustainability because they'll be so integrated into what a company does and how it measures its success and how it pays its people that you won't be able to identify it as a thing in and of itself. Uh, It will just be the way you do business. But right now, it does require this additional focus, this additional disclosure, uh, treating it um, in a in a very focused and, and in a special way because it's of such interest to investors and other stakeholders, including companies, employees, and customers, um, that it that it does require boards to say, okay, well, how are we going to deal with this when we talk about strategy? How are we going to deal with this when we talk about risk? How are we going to deal with this when we consider uh, important aspects like human capital management, like uh, diversity and inclusion, all of which can be seen within an ESG framework? Um, so I, I think it's here to stay. And directors who aren't talking about this in board meetings, who haven't identified which committee is going to do the heavy lifting, who are not telling their story, are going to be vulnerable. And maybe while they're performing financially, they will um, be able to fly under the radar. But the minute there's any kind of underperformance, uh, people will start paying attention to these other issues and link that to their underperformance. And uh, at that point, they're in trouble if they haven't been doing the work. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting idea about ESG eventually disappearing. It's It's almost like technology in a way and digital transformation, right? It's it it was a thing that everybody had to talk about for a while. And now every organization has the digital transformation strategy. Um, so saying, you know, we're using AI and machine learning, of course you are. So I think it's very interesting to 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 look ahead and think about where ESG will ultimately land. It'll just be part of the business and indistinguishable for the business. It's a really interesting point. Anthony, I want to get your thoughts on another big trend that we've seen uh, very recently in a few announcements is, is uh, linking executive compensation to uh, achieving ESG goals. And, and that's not new, but it seems as if there have been some some recent and significant announcements on on that on that point. So, how are you thinking about that and tracking that? Yeah, I mean, I think look at the end of the day, that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Uh, what you what you pay for is what you get, and if you if you are taking ESG seriously and it's being integrated into the business, then it really ought to feature in how uh, senior executives are getting paid. Um, And so, you know, you're starting to see that. Um, You know, to to some extent, as you say, 
there have always been ESG metrics uh, that people have looked at. For instance, if you were in manufacturing or engineering kind of company, health and safety uh, might well have been a goal um, that, that, that you would have been um, rewarded against. And I think that, uh, you know, the same, the same is true, but we're looking at a broader suite of issues now. And again, it goes back to that materiality assessment that I mentioned earlier on, because, you know, what we're trying to avoid here is people being paid to pay lip service to ESG or misdirecting them into activity that is really not required, not essential um, to the running of the business. And so if you've done a materiality assessment, if you understand what the material opportunities as well as risks are to your business within an ESG framework, then I think you've got some hope of identifying metrics that actually move the business. Um, so it's not about, again, again, what I'm trying to avoid is this concept of adding on. So now we need to add on a whole series of metrics around ESG. Well, no, you don't. What you need to do is integrate ESG into your business and then make sure that the metrics reflect that integration. So you're not adding on a whole new suite of things, but you're identifying what you what is really important to this business and then paying people accordingly hmm. <clears throat> and and do and focusing on what on what matters most the materiality piece um, I do want to talk about uh, diversity equity and inclusion both on boards and within organizations and <clears throat> and do you distinguish between d e and I at all? Are they different? What are the priorities? How should organizations and boards be thinking about this? Sure. Well, let's let's take this in two parts, and let's talk about the boards, and then let's talk about the organization. So, you know, as you know, over the last decade, there's been a huge push around diversity on boards, um, and it started being focused around gender, and now it's sort of evolving, certainly in the US, the UK, Canada, some other countries um, around ethnicity and, and racial diversity. And if you go back to the beginning, what was that all about? It was about trying to get cognitive diversity in the boardroom. That's what investors were trying to achieve. They wanted to make sure that boards were not... Um, using groupthink as they made decisions were not, you know, purely cronies of the CEO. That was a problem they're trying to solve for. But it's very difficult from the outside to have any sense of what somebody's cognitive uh, style is. Um, and so they came down on this idea, well, if we got more women in the boardroom, they would be coming from different backgrounds and necessarily they would think differently than the men and so we kind of make we break that monopoly of, of uh, groupthink in the boardroom, um, and and it's easy for us as an investor to observe outside. You know, we can look at photos, we can look at bios, and you know, in the current situation, we can kind of most of the time guess what someone's gender is. By the way, I footnote the fact that in the next decade, that will not be possible. 
Uh, and so, you know, assumptions that we make about people's gender, you know, that, that's going to all go away. But that's kind of what was what was moving the investors in the first place. And now they've added this additional sense of wanting racial uh, and ethnic diversity. And partly it's a social justice issue. Partly it's a representation matters issue. Uh, but it's also about really boosting that cognitive diversity in the boardroom. So that's happening. But at the same time, there is a question around inclusion in the boardroom, which is a lot of first-time board directors who are women, who are people of colour, have come into the boardroom and are not necessarily speaking up. They're not necessarily being listened to. They're not necessarily being included. And boards are not getting the full value out of them being there. And so I think we're heading towards uh, a bit of an inclusion crisis for a number of boards, um, where that tension is going to need to be resolved in some way. Um, and it falls on board leadership. It falls on the board chair and the committee chairs, really to make sure that everybody is participating and they are running the board and the committees in a way that encourages everyone to participate and contribute the skills and experiences that brought them onto the board in the first place. Now, if you then pivot and look at the organization, uh, you can think about the fact that as boards have become more diverse, in some cases ahead of where the senior management team is, they've also started to push management to diversify uh, the, the organization. And so you, you're seeing uh, targets. Again, that's kind of being reflected a little bit in pay uh, where senior executives are being having metrics set around representation in their in their business or their function, um, but again we have to go beyond diversity. Diversity is important, and we have to have inclusion where everyone belongs in the organisation and everybody's voice is heard in the organisation. So I think diverse boards have a better chance of of doing that. Um, and diverse organizations uh, are going to work much more effectively if they have diverse boards. So there's definitely synergies. These things go hand in hand. But I've observed that oftentimes the, the board gets diversified first because of the external pressure from investors and others. And it's the, um, it's the uh, organizations that follow uh, behind and how slowly they follow or how quickly they follow is really the issue. <clears throat> and and I've heard you talk about this before about that that point of the organization and the senior leadership in the organization versus the board. So where where do organizations have to look for directors? Is it is it predominantly from outside? Does that change? The makeup of the board does that change the direction of the organization if these are outside directors brought in as opposed to an executive who's bet, who's come up through the ranks and is african-american or another underrepresented group so you're talking about directors as in in the in the organization not not directors on the board yes yes yeah. Uh, well, I think it is about pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. So it is yeah. about making sure that you're actually hiring people 
all parts of the organization and you're developing them and you're creating um, career opportunities, career paths for them. Uh, we, we're not going to solve this problem if it's simply about, you know, the biggest uh, companies with the largest pay packets stealing the best talent from everyone else. Uh, at the end of the day, this is a societal problem as well. And we've got to make sure that all companies are doing their best to ensure their workforces are diver diverse, that those people, when they're there, can have satisfying careers uh, and are going to get the development and the mentoring and the support they need to be successful so they don't have to leave and go somewhere else. Um, you know, for the, the challenge for the board uh, is, is a somewhat different one, which is where do they get the pipeline of board directors from? And, of course, the answer is from the top levels of, of uh, other organizations uh, who've managed to create uh, diverse populations in their senior management team. Uh, and those people are now teams, very attractive board candidates um, and often are coming on the board with very little board experience, and that's fine because I think boards have realized it's easier to train someone uh, to understand a board role um, than they had realized previously and and uh, and to get get something out of the people who come on the board pretty quickly. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then just more broadly on the other aspects of S um, in terms are and, and the balance uh, within organizations and how they're thinking about climate, social and governance. Are those SS roared to the front, I think, uh, last year, right? Um is that going to change? Is that going to evolve? How do you see that um, playing out in particular? Yeah, it's a really good question. So S being the social in environmental, social and governance. Uh, and, and last year, that was kind of reflected in a couple of ways. One was, what are you doing for your employees during the pandemic? Um, and the concept of wellness, joining health and safety, uh, as important um, aspect that uh, stakeholders were looking at in terms of um, the company. Uh, and also how the company was treating its communities, how it was treating its supply chain, its suppliers, and so on, uh, really being judged on that sort of uh, social network that a company is in the, uh, sits in the center of with all of its different stakeholders. Um, I, I don't think that's going to go away. I mean, yes, look, we know climate is the number one issue. So the E is very much in everyone's minds right now. But I don't think that means that we're neglecting the S because we've got a huge challenge coming up, several challenges, actually. One is we've got return to work. So as people get vaccinated, as COVID comes under control, uh, companies are now rethinking what does it mean uh, to be in the office? What does it mean to be in the plant? What does it mean uh, to be an employee? What, and how is that going to impact our culture? And I think that the idea that we would somehow go back to the old normal of you know early 2020 is starting to recede because all the polling that I've seen shows that 
certainly for office workers, most office workers are telling their employers that they don't wish to come back to the office five days a week. Uh, and in some cases, they don't want to come back at all. Um, and so how, how are companies going to deal with that uh, as they move forward? So there's a lot of, lot of thinking that needs to be done around that, a lot of implications around real estate as well. Um, at the same time, um, we've got the whole social justice, racial justice movement here in the US, but but in other countries as well, um, following the events of last summer, the murder of George Floyd, etc., and how uh, companies are dealing with that in terms of their employees, in terms of how they relate to their communities. So I think I think those are big impacts, and they're long term impacts. They're not going anywhere. So you know, keeping a focus on that S is going to be really important. Excellent. And just to the maybe the say on sustainability as a as a topic of 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 interest and significance in the, within the board. How do you think about that? Yeah, this is this is a fascinating uh, issue that's kind of emerged over the last uh, year or so. So just just so people understand what that is, right now. In investors in many markets, including in the U.S., have an advisory vote on executive compensation. The shorthand for that is called say on pay. So they have a say on pay. And there's been a campaign really started in Europe uh, to give investors a say on climate or a say on sustainability. The idea being that management would present their plans, uh, you know, maybe how we're going to get to net zero carbon by, you know, fill in the date, uh, and to put those plans to investors and have them be agreed so that there's a consensus around what the company is trying to achieve, and it'll be easier for it to move forward knowing that shareholders are supporting uh, its long-term plans um, around sustainability, around climate. Uh, and we've seen a number of companies uh, go ahead and, and adopt this for themselves. You know, in Europe, uh, companies like Nestle, Unilever, Total just had a vote um, on theirs uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, where it got over 90% support from investors. Um, and even in the US, I think Moody's has adopted uh, a say on sustainability, and there are other companies looking to do the same thing. It's not cut and dried. Some of the larger investors are concerned about this proliferation of, of voting that takes place and the research that's got to be done uh, behind that, uh, you know, the, the extra work for the proxy advisors, the extra work for their corporate governance teams. And they believe that they can achieve the same thing through voting on directors. And of course, the whole ExxonMobil example we talked about earlier on is a great example where you, you can actually achieve a lot um, by, by voting against some directors and voting for others. Although it's also the case that it looks like a couple of shareholder proposals around disclosure and reporting on climate-related issues have also been passed there again, sort of advisory, but I'm, I'm guessing the board's going to have to move forward. Now there's going to be three people from the 
are nominated by the activists on the board. So, you know, there are other mechanisms out there, but I, I would watch this. I think it's got some legs to it. Uh, and I think over the next few years, we're going to see a lot more volunteerism here from companies putting their plans to the vote. Uh, and in some cases, you're going to have activists and others putting shareholder proposals asking for votes on those plans, uh, knowing <laughs> that, that, that actually you have disgruntled investors who would probably vote against them. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating uh, area and, um, you know, one that a year ago we wouldn't have even had this conversation. Yeah. And you mentioned the world of work and maybe to wrap up on the topic of board effectiveness in the age of Zoom and remote work. How how has board effectiveness evolved and changed over the past 16 months? And and where do you think it's going? And is it is it a return back to dinners and um and in-person meetings, or do you think this hybrid model will continue? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, just as we were talking about the return to work means you're not going back to the old normal of January, February 2020. I think that's true for boards as well. Uh, I don't think there are as many board directors saying that they don't ever want to show up to a board meeting again. Um, but, but uh you know, I think what they are saying is we need a hybrid model where, you know, when we come together in person, it's because we've got really important strategic conversations that we want to have that are just going to be so much easier when we're all in a room together. And a lot of what boards have to do that is really about um, consent agendas and uh, compliance uh, uh, could be continued to be done virtually. So what we're hearing is, you know, boards suggesting, well, maybe we're going to keep at least one meeting a year virtual. You know, that, that meeting which everyone had tr- uh, trouble getting to because of the weather, um, or you know, we're going to keep some of the committees meeting virtually, uh, so that when we get together, we have more time with all of us in a room together. And those meetings are going to be much more focused on strategy. They're going to be more focused on risk, on culture, on human capital management, understanding the bench strength of our management teams. Um, there's no doubt that uh, directors have missed the interaction with each other, the social interaction, and they've also missed that with management. And, of course, a lot of people join boards in the last year and a bit, uh, and join management teams, and they've never met each other. So uh, I think that that's maybe caused some boards to have a degree of dysfunctional um, issues where the board just hasn't really gelled and there's a little bit of mistrust of motives and so on. But I think that uh, that will that will get that will sort itself out once people are able to come together in person, in a safe way. I think there's an appetite to do it. I just don't think we're going back to the old normal. Mm, Great. All right. Well, always a insightful uh, and thoughtful conversation with you, Anthony. I really appreciate you coming back on the podcast. 
Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a great conversation and we'll keep tracking these issues and we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about them again. Absolutely. Thanks again. Bye-bye. The Purposing Podcast is a production of Actual Agency, helping innovators communicate in a changing world. More at www.actual.agency.